Welcome to Nightlight. I was speaking in a recent Sunday morning church service and uh, found myself rather strongly warning the people of something that I've warned about many times before. And I do believe the warning is needed. or I wouldn't have given it, but that warning is that there's a danger in becoming so focused on end-time prophecy as a speculative pastime that it becomes an excuse not to obey the Lord and do what's right in front of you. I, I, you know, the reason that so many people get caught up in studying prophecy is because often, it, it because it deals with the future, speculation about the future can be fun, but it doesn't make any demands of us in the area of, obe- of obedience or uh, laying our life down for others. It doesn't require anything of us except to speculate. And we can drown in all sorts of questions about the Antichrist and the timing of various events and so forth. And I, you know, was just speaking that to the people because I felt at the moment that it was something that they needed to hear. But, you know, every time I've ever given that warning, and I've given it fairly often over the last 20 years, but every time I've done it, there has been an increasing awakening in my own heart that the lack of of awareness of the return of the Lord Jesus to this earth is a great contributor to worldly-minded indifference. And that is more dangerous than what I was warning people about concerning speculative prophecy. Even though I do get concerned at times over the many, what what I consider to be time-wasting pursuits that I just listed, To be honest, most people I know who have enough concern over prophetic questions usually have an equally motivated concern for what they should be doing with the time that we have been given uh, that's left to us. And in spite of my cry to awaken us out of over-speculative prophecy stargazing, quote-unquote, when I look in Scripture... I can't find many scriptures that sound that same warning, not to get too involved in studying prophecy. When I look in scripture, my warnings seem to be rebuked. I mean, look at just a, just a few. These are just a few. Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able to subdue all things to himself. Hebrews 9.28 Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many and to them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. 2 Corinthians 5, 2-4, and I'm reading this one from the, the message by Eugene Peterson. We know that when these bodies of ours are taken down like tents and folded away, they will be replaced by resurrection bodies from heaven, God-made, not handmade, and we'll never have to relocate our tents again. Sometimes we can hardly wait to move, and so we cry out in frustration. Compared to what's coming, living conditions around here seem like a stopover in an unfurnished shack, and we're tired of it. 
We've been given a glimpse of the real thing, our true home, our resurrection bodies. The Spirit of God whets our appetites by giving us a taste of what's ahead. He puts a little of heaven in our hearts so that we'll never settle for less. That's why we live with such good cheer. Cramped conditions here don't get us down. They only remind us of the spacious living conditions ahead. It's what we trust in but don't yet see that keeps us going. Do you suppose a few ruts in the road or rocks in the path are going to stop us? When the time comes, we will be plenty ready to exchange exile for homecoming. Then uh, I want to read just a few more. Again, these are just a few of the verses in the New Testament that contradict my concern that we could get overly focused on end-time prophecy. 1 John 3, verses 1 through 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called sons of God, and that's what we are. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the sons of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And every person who has this hope purifies himself or herself, even as Jesus is pure. James 5, verses 7 through 9. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waits for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he receives the earthly and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draws near. Titus 2, verse 11 through 13. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Then, of course, 1 Thessalonians four thirteen through 18, most of us know But I would not have you to be ignorant concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not sorrow as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so those who are asleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who are asleep, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and survive shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. And maybe the most famous of all, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 58. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruption must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. 
Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, when you think about it, the Bible warnings that are most commonly uh, repeated are never warnings to not pay too much attention to prophecy. I mean, well, Clay, why did you ever say it then? Because I think there's a difference between a biblical exhortation to keep our hearts pure from the world and focused on the eternal. There's a difference in that from the kind of pop Christianity, bubblegum, easy believism, fly out of here and escape anything bad mentality that many people get caught into. So as much as it may seem like I'm contradicting myself, I'm still saying two things. I'm warning that there's a danger in an over-speculative focus on end-time events if the purpose for that is just to whet your uh, speculative appetite but never obey the Lord in doing what's in front of you uh, in response to the fact that he's coming soon. But on the other hand, people who truly love the Lord and are seeking him in Scripture usually are quite aware that there's more to Scripture than just studying the end of the age and trying to figure out who the Antichrist is going to be. But look at some of the biblical warnings that are that are there. Uh, the first one, I would say, is a warning that would maybe... Uh, three S's, you know, how teachers sometimes want to get a bunch of words that start with the same letter for some reason. And uh, so I, I've done that here. Uh, don't be sentimental, don't be stupid, and don't be smart. <laughs> That'll make more sense in, in just a moment. Don't be sentimental about the wrong things, Jesus said in Luke 17, verse 29 through 33. In other words, don't cling to the past. Jesus said, the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed everything. Even so shall it be the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he will be. Uh, in that day, he who shall be upon the housetop uh, and his stuff in the house, let him not come down and and try to take it away. Uh, he that is in the field, let him not return back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life shall preserve it. You know, uh, there might be lots of better interpretations of what Jesus is talking about there, but the, the one that strikes my own heart, and maybe you can relate to it, is that over the last several years, God has ruthlessly dealt with me about a, a a tendency in my heart to be overly attached to the past. I'm certainly not talking about sinful past. 
that's obvious that you lay that down. But I'm talking about an attachment to a certain kind of sentimental uh, memory. And, and I'm not saying that sentiment is wrong. I mean, there's good sentiments, of course, and there's bad sentiments, of course. But the the good sentiments can actually become bad when they make you look back instead of forward. Jesus said, anyone putting his hand to the plow and looking back is not fit for my kingdom. Uh, and I don't think that's a commentary on salvation or damnation as much as it's a commentary on the fact that a, a, you know, a guy who's looking back can't, can't rope. He can't, uh, he can't do a straight row. He'll make a mess. And when you're looking back instead of forward, uh, it can open you up to all kinds of error and getting pulled into directions that may not of itself be wrong, but it's fruitless at best and seductive at worst. And I had uh, aspects of that in my heart that I've, I've mentioned at other places, so I'm not going to go into it here, but... Uh, Jesus is saying concerning the end of the age, remember Lot's wife. Don't be caught looking backward so much that you miss what's happening right in front of you that's calling you forward. Secondly, don't be stupid. Jesus says in Luke chapter uh, 21, Watch over your own hearts, lest at any time your hearts become overcharged with partying and drunkenness and the cares of this life, so that that day comes upon you unawares. For like a snare shall it come on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be accounted worthy. Uh, one, one translation says that you may have the strength to pass through all these things and to stand before the Son of Man. Then third, don't be smart. And I'm putting the word smart here in quotation marks. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Let me remind you of what you already know in your heart, which both the prophets and apostles and our Lord Jesus all spoke to us about. First, that in the last days, scoffers walking after their own lusts will come, saying, So where is the promise of his coming? Since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this, these people are willingly ignorant, that just as the ancient world was created out of the water and was destroyed by water, so the heavens and the earth of this present time are kept in existence and will be destroyed by fire in the day all ungodliness and those who practice evil are destroyed. This day is held off, not because God is tardy, but out of his mercy, desiring that all should have time to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. Now, if you're thinking, by the way, let me just inject here, that the analogy of a thief in the night and a great noise don't go together, because in our culture, a thief in the night creeps in stealthily and quietly and then creeps out. That's not the way it was at the time of the New Testament's writing. A thief in the night uh, was, was an attack. 
and it came very loud and frightening and overwhelming. And so when he says that the Lord will come like a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements melt with fervent heat, the Lord also, uh, the earth also and the worlds uh, and everything in it will be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what kind of persons ought we to be in our lifestyle? Looking for and hasting the coming of the day of God. King James Version is erroneous here. It says we hasten to the day of God. But that's not what the text says. It says looking for and hastening the day of God. Nevertheless, we look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Therefore, since you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found with him in peace without spot, blameless. Notice how many times in these eight or ten verses that we've read, you are, you are, it's taken for granted that you're looking for him, that you're longing for him. The attitude of the people who received these original letters was a, a very different attitude than what has become common in modern 20th, 21st century Western Christianity. We are going to have to return to the mindset that these verses presuppose we're going to have if we're going to be comforted and strengthened by the Scriptures the only way we're going to be able to be comforted and strengthened and exhorted by those scriptures is to have the same mindset that the people that these scriptures were first written to had. These verses mean nothing to people who are really mostly in love with the world system, find their comfort and joy and pleasure in the world system, and think of heaven as a nice ending to a happy life but actually sigh, kind of a, a, a mournful, sentimental sigh of sorrow at the thought of leaving behind all the wonderful goodness of the world and going to boring old heaven. And when I, when I run across people who have that view, I mean, I had that view when I was maybe a teenager, but it didn't take me long once I'd come to the Lord for the, the darkness and brokenness of the world to become real to me and for the hope of what his return meant. And then when I saw it in the New Testament, every page uh, just, just glistened with this bright hope. Uh, and the biblical meaning of hope is a guaranteed future, not a I hope so. Uh, and and that is the hope that helped me go through the process that I had to go through uh, that uh, was painful and frightening and sometimes even terrifying. But uh, I had that hope carrying me. Now, the characteristics of the first century church regarding Jesus' return, I just want to look at a few characteristics. You could probably find a lot more than these that I've listed, but... The first characteristic I see in the early church that we don't seem to have very very well is that they were weary with the corruption in the world. But they were not weary of the earth. Now, get this. They were weary of the corruption in the world, but they were not uh, 
weary of the earth. Now, that's going to become more clear to you if it's not already as we go on here in a few minutes, but just keep that in mind before we try to take it apart. Number two, they are longing for the return of the Lord to the earth in order to destroy evil. They're longing for it. Number three, this longing is purifying them of their own worldliness and inner corruption. You know, First John, we read a while ago, he who has this hope within himself purifies himself, even as Jesus himself is pure. Then number four, they had confidence in the coming of the Lord, and that made them immune from tyranny because they believed in the resurrection of the dead and the guaranteed future bought for them by the Lord Jesus in the cross and the resurrection. Let me just go back these through these briefly again. Number one, they were weary with the corruption of the world, but they didn't hate the earth and want to escape it. Number two, they are longing for the return of the Lord because they knew that that meant not the end of happiness, but the end of evil. Number three, this longing caused them to experience an inner purification in their own private lives. And number four, they were able to face tyranny that even imposed itself upon them with threats of death because they believed in the resurrection of the dead and the overcoming power of the cross that Jesus uh, gave them. Now, when you read these all these verses together, several points begin to emerge. And I wish you would uh, go back over them and just jot down the texts that I gave you. Uh, another one that I meant to include and I didn't is Romans chapter 8, where Paul says, you know, the, the earnest expectation of the creation uh, is longing for the manifestation of the sons of God. Uh, so that the whole creation will be delivered from the bondage of corruption at the manifestation of the sons of God, which, according to 1 John 3, is at the appearing of the Lord Jesus, when it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know when we see him, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. We will be manifested in, in, in to the creation, to the physical creation in our true, our true bodies. And that the whole creation, Paul says, is longing for that to happen. So the the attitude of the New Testament is one of uh, freedom from connection to the corruption of the world, even though we're still tempted or still struggling. I mean, one of the reasons we're longing for this world to be confronted by the return of Jesus is that the things that are tempting us and pulling us down and areas that we're, where we repeatedly seem to be faltering and stumbling, those those things will be instantly destroyed at his coming uh, and we'll be free. Uh, but somewhere along the line, people have gotten uh, the idea of the coming of the Lord is the end of any real fun and the beginning of one long Sunday school class. And uh, it, it, it propagates a worldliness that is crippling to us when we consider that we are going to face the ultimate confrontation between light and dark at the end of the age. I'll have more to say about that later, I guess, I hope. 
Uh, let me let me just examine a few things the early church understood that we've got to get back in our thinking. Number one, the early church had no false dichotomy between spirit and flesh, or spirit, the spiritual and the physical. We need to do away with the concept that is so common among us that when I describe it, it it it'll almost sound like I'm saying something wrong. But this view of ours has been handed down and so often repeated for so many years that most absolutely think it's the gospel, when in fact it's the total opposite. The false thinking is that earth is a total loss, the body is a prison, God cares nothing for the physical world, and Jesus died and rose again to save us from the earth and take us away to heaven. Heaven is considered a spiritual place, while earth is a natural place. To be spiritual, then, is to be disembodied. To be fallen, natural, and stuck in a body is to be on the earth. This is not Christian doctrine. This is Gnostic doctrine. The Gnostics were false teachers who rejected the physical world and taught that only pure spirit was uh, valuable. And uh, therefore, to be pure, you must become disembodied. Uh, We've talked about this many times before. Paul was addressing this lie when he wrote the book of Colossians. This is why he says Jesus is physically the fullness of God manifested in a physical body. He was stressing the fact that obviously the spirit and the body are not in opposition to each other. They, uh, They are united in the incarnation. But this whole idea of the flesh being wicked and the spirit being pure comes from Greek pagan mythology and ultimately then from the devil. It divides man into two parts, spiritual and physical, with the spiritual being being valued and the physical being being rejected. This was never the Hebrew view because it wasn't God's view because it's not true. But just listen to this example from a Christian song that was popular a few years ago. It says, This house of flesh is but a prison. Bars of bone hold my soul. And of course the song goes on to celebrate the deliverance from the prison house of the body. Uh, and look, we can understand how that thinking gets in, into us, we, you know, when you know, when you groan and creak when you try to get up out of your chair, <laughs> you think it's the chair creaking and it's your own bones, uh, and that increases with age. And yeah, you know, yeah, we know all that. But but the mindset of the early church was never, man, I can't wait to get out of this prison of my body. That was never their mindset. So what difference does it make? It makes a major amount of difference. And you'll see that before we finish, Lord willing. But the flesh does not refer to freedom from having a body. Uh, That's not what it means to overcome the flesh, to get rid of your body. Overcoming the flesh means you no longer live as if you're separate from God. Uh, Living in the Spirit doesn't mean living as a ghost. It means living in union with God while you're still in your physical body. It was the early church's understanding of both of these aspects of their nature that made them effective representatives for God on the earth. 
In fact, because they believed that they were already God's sons and daughters, because they believed in the resurrection of the dead and the coming eventually of the king who would manifest a totally new and holy kingdom, they were dangerous to the empires of men. It was never the Gnostics who got persecuted. Why? Well, because they were otherworldly. They were no threat to the kingdoms of this world. They believed that the physical didn't matter and only the spirit mattered. So there was no danger uh, coming from the Gnostics in the eyes of the Roman persecutors. When Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, else my people would fight, Jesus was not meaning that it's all just a smoky fantasy and that there's nothing real to it. Pilate, you don't need to worry about me. I mean, we're all, we're just going to go off to heaven. You know, that's not what he meant. He meant that the power of his kingdom, which would eventually take over all the kingdoms of the earth, would not use earthly, worldly power in order to take control, but that his kingdom would come and was already present in the earth was clearly stated over and over by Jesus and by the early church. Another verse that may come to mind that seems to support the idea that we belong up in heaven, not on earth, and that that's what we're supposed to focus on is Philippians 3.20. I quoted it a while ago. It states, quote, Our citizenship is in heaven. But as is so often the case, we, we don't understand the cultural context in which Paul made that statement, and so we misunderstand it. Paul is purposefully using a term the Philippians would identify with. Philippi was a Roman colony. But not all of the settlers that were there in Philippi were Roman citizens. Still, they knew what Roman citizenship meant. They were to be Rome in extension. To be in Philippi was to be in Rome, so to speak. So though they were an outpost many, many miles away from Rome, their citizenship was Roman. Obviously, this did not mean they were to be ghosts. It meant the opposite. They were to be Rome in all the outpost areas where Rome held dominion. So when Paul says, your citizenship is in heaven, the Philippian saints would have immediately understood the analogy. Just like you're not in Rome, but Rome is in you because you're a Roman citizen, so in the same way, your citizenship comes from heaven, and you're to occupy the territory in which you live as if heaven is already on the earth. There's no idea here of a false dichotomy between the physical and the spiritual. In fact, it's the very opposite. It's not us going off into a spirit world and disappearing, but it's the kingdom coming to the earth. Now, the, the next mindset that the early church had that we've got to re regain is they were against the world and therefore were able to heal the world. The early church was fully aware that the world they lived in was corrupt and that it was passing away. What they needed to be loosed from was not their physical bodies, but to be loosed from the affections and lusts and idolatry of the present evil world. Paul expresses this in his opening statement to the Galatians in chapter 1, verse 4, where he says that Jesus gave himself for our sins in order that he might deliver us from this present evil world. And if you get a picture in your mind at the quoting of that verse that he meant to, to take you out of the planet, then you miss the point. 
He came to deliver you from this present evil world. Jesus said in John 17, Father, I pray that you not take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one who is in the world. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 40, on the, the birthday of the church, Peter says in his sermon, in the closing words of his first sermon, save yourselves from this perverted generation. He didn't say save yourselves from hell, although that's obviously part of it. But save yourselves from this perverted generation. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, which we quoted previously, Paul explains that Jesus came to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify for himself his own special people empowered to do good. Now, obviously, doing good means doing good on the earth because you don't need people to come do good in heaven. Such an empowered people envisioned with heaven's economy, secure in heaven's life, and submitted to heaven's king would be a terror to the kingdoms of this present world. Not because they are a military danger, but far more they are a moral danger. Because they are free from the world, they have the power to overcome the world. Just like Jesus said in John 16, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. In the world you'll have tribulation, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Who is he that overcomes the world? But he that believes Jesus is the Son of God. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith, John says. Revelation 11:15 says, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Revelation 7, 9 says a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb. That's a picture of how this turns out. Now, there are two extremes related to the end times church, which I want to try to put out of our thinking right now if I can. The one extreme is the most common to Americans, and I've already mentioned it, that the church will be marginalized into a tiny persecuted sect and right before it is completely overwhelmed by evil, the Lord will swoop down and snatch us away from uh, the bad times just in time. And we can go off to heaven. The other view is that the church will grow stronger and stronger until it politically takes over the world. And then he'll, you know, we'll just hand it to Jesus when he comes back. The early church did not believe either of these ideas. They did not believe the earth was going to get better and better, even under the church's influence. Nor did they believe it would get worse and worse until they had to be airlifted out. They believed Jesus had conquered death and hell and that his spirit lived in them and they were to occupy until he returned, at which point he would utterly destroy all evil, set up his rule from Jerusalem, restore the fallen planet, bring justice and goodness where there has been cruelty and evil, and eventually destroy all corruption out of the entire universe, with us, his people, reigning alongside him and serving his restoring, redeeming purposes, first on the earth and then throughout the rest of the universe, thus fulfilling the words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 9, verse 6, of the increase of his kingdom and government, there shall be no end. Now that to me is a lot more exciting than either playing politics on the one side or 
flying out of here on the other. Uh, please don't misunderstand me. I believe First Thessalonians 4. The Lord will descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. I, I, I'm not saying that's not true. I, of course I believe that. I just don't believe some of the some of the fantasies that we've woven around it that we treat as if it's Scripture. Uh, Psalm 110 says, My people shall make of themselves a free will offering in the day I gather my armies. Now, I've read that verse for 40 years. My people shall make of themselves a free will offering. I used to read it and I'd say, You know, Jesus, I want to do that. And I, I remember, you know, when I was about 20 years old, I got on my face in my living in my bedroom and I prayed that prayer. I said, I, I did the best I could. And I, you know what? The Lord accepted it. I mean, the Lord wasn't, I, mean, I don't think he looked down there and said, oh, you, you little twerp. I don't think he did that at all. I think he took what I was trying to give him the best I could. And he said, I, I'll, I'll help you get there. And uh, now, many years later, in my mid-50s, I can tell you I'm a lot closer to praying that with a depth of reality uh, than, than I ever had in those days. But maybe years up ahead, I'll look back and see that the level of prayer that I'm praying now is not all that impressive. I'm not trying to be impressive. I'm just telling you that because... I love Jesus and follow him the best I know how. He is keeping his word that he will be, he who's begun a good work in me will finish it. And he's transforming me, cleansing me, dealing with me about my wrong affections, about, you know, the three S's I talked about a while ago. He's dealing with me about sentimental connections to things of the past that are no longer helpful to me. They're not necessarily evil. They're just not, they're not good. They're not sinful. They're just not helpful. And I'm finding many of them being laid aside in me. And, and as they're getting laid aside in me, lo and behold, there's, no, there's room in me for things of the, of, the, of the scriptures and things of the Holy Spirit and other things that the Lord is doing in my life that I didn't have room for because I didn't know how much sentimental old junk I had laying around, taking up space where treasure could have been. You know, C.S. Lewis talked about how we're, 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 it's not that we want too much, it's that we want too little. We're like children playing in a mud puddle when we don't understand we've been invited to the ocean and we have no conception of the ocean, so we stay playing with our mud puddles. Well, let me, I, I tried to think of some examples I might be able to share with you of, of people in our, in our spiritual past who have achieved this level of making themselves a free will offering in the day God gathers his armies. And one of them that always comes to mind is a, a, a passage from the, uh, the Journal of David Brainerd. Uh, many of you may not know David Brainerd was the uh, son-in-law of uh, Jonathan Edwards. And uh, he died before he was 30, ministering to the Indians. Just poured his life out, ministering to the Indians. And I've, you know, I've heard people who have read a little of David Brainerd's 
story, and they thought, I mean, I could see it on their face. It was like, well, poor, poor man, bless his poor heart. He didn't have much of a life anyway, and then it ended early, and he spent it all out there taking care of the Indians. I mean, man, what a bummer of a life. You know, he never got to go to a ball game, never got to watch TV, never got to go to McDonald's. How, you know, how sad. Uh, Now, the language here is kind of archaic and flowery to us. And if you just kind of try to overlook that and hear the heart of this, this is what he wrote. I long for God and for conformity to his will and holiness 10,000 times more than for anything here below. He describes standing before the communion altar and becoming aware of the power of the presence on the table. And he said he became filled with a light and a sense of love that was so strong that, quote, I was in ecstasy. My body was so weak I could hardly stand. I felt at the same time an exceeding tenderness and most fervent love toward all mankind so that my soul and all the powers of it seemed to melt into softness and sweetness. This love and joy cast out all fear. Then three years later, he wrote in that same journal, I feel exceedingly dead to the world and all of its enjoyments. I was ready to give up my life and all its comforts as as soon as the Lord called me to that. And yet, I have so much comfort as almost ever I had before in my whole life. Life itself appeared but an empty bubble. The riches, honors, enjoyments of, of this present world are extremely tasteless and boring. I long to be entirely dead and crucified to all things here below. My soul was sweetly resigned to God to make disposal of me in any way he wishes. And I saw that there, uh, and I saw that there had nothing that had ever happened to me but what was best for me. Perspective is everything, folks. Now, this is obviously not a salvation experience, for heaven's sakes. This is a man describing an inner work of the Holy Spirit that came close to what Paul speaks of in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 15. I want to read that to you out of Barclay. And as I read this, think about Brainerd's statement in his journal. Paul says, Whatever achievements in my life and career I would once have reckoned among the prophets of life, I have written off as dead loss for the sake of Christ. Yes, and more than that, I am prepared to write off everything as dead loss for the sake of getting to know Christ Jesus my Lord. For that knowledge is something which surpasses everything in the world. For his sake I have abandoned everything. And I regard all else as of no more value than filth for the garbage heap. For me, the only thing of value in the world is to gain Christ and to make my life wholly His. All I want is the relationship with God which only God Himself can give me, all found on faith in Christ. It founded on faith in Christ. 
My one aim is to know Christ and to experience the power of his resurrection and to share with him in his sufferings. My aim is to die the death he died so that if it may be possible, I may reach the resurrection from the dead. And the Amplified translation of this implies while still in this mortal body. Paul says, I, I, I want I want to be so in union with Christ that his sufferings are my sufferings and his resurrection is my resurrection. This this has nothing to do with Paul working hard in hopes that he might make the resurrection. Uh, That's contrary to every other scriptural definition of uh, what salvation is. But he's saying, I I want to be so in union with him that that I, I can achieve the resurrection while still in my mortal body. I think he's making reference to that in Romans 8 when he says, if that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he will quicken, make alive your mortal bodies also. And and you see in the writings of Paul, which we don't have time here to, to look at, we, we've looked at some of the things I'm going to refer to just recently, but where Paul talks about the tremendous battles he faced. Uh, without were fightings, within were fears. We were surrounded by uh, death on every side. We thought we'd been given over to death. He says in in Second uh, Corinthians chapter two. It was it's this it's this power that he's talking about. This resurrection power. I lay my life down. He says I die daily, so that the the life of Jesus might be made manifested in my manifest in my mortal flesh. People ask me all the time, you know, how come we don't see the miracles in America that are happening in other parts of the world? And and we are seeing some miracles, but to, I don't. To me, it's a no-brainer. I mean, we are eaten up with love for this present world. We love this present world. I remember I walked into a, 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 a Jesus People supermarket. In Southern California, I mean, where else would you find that except in Southern California? This is years ago, back in the middle of the Jesus movement, and I walked in this place. It was, you know, Christmas Christian Disneyland, and I was just kind of looking at all of it and just feeling giddy at the thought of digging through all the stuff. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me as clear as I've ever heard Him, and He said, "How much do you love me, and how much do you love?" Stuff related to me. And uh, I don't want to be legalistic with that. I mean, you know, every, every, everything has its place. But, but I stopped. It stopped me in my tracks. I thought, you know, how much of my Christian, how much of my love for Jesus is actually a love for Christian culture? And Christian culture is so American that what I really am loving is an Americanized version of Christianity. That is idolatrous. And so if I was ever put to the test where I was separated from my cultural milieu and had did not have the comforts and supports of Christian music and Christian books and Christian people and Christian gatherings and Christian bumper stickers and Christian Christians, and how would I fare? Would, would my union with Jesus be enough? See, Paul Paul says in the closing words of his letter to Timothy before he's he's martyred, he says, you know, Timothy, nobody stood with me. Nobody. Everybody abandoned me at my trial. 
Nobody was there, but the Lord stood with me. Are you, are you, are you hearing me? So when I talk about prophecy, when I talk about longing for his return, I remember times in my life when I would stand and look out the window and I would think, I wonder if it'll be today. You know, I stood at my window and looked for my kids to come home and uh, looked for loved ones to appear in my driveway. And uh, as much as I loved them, as much as I wanted to see them, nothing moved me as deeply as those days when I used to look out the window toward the toward this uh, eastern sky and just say, I wonder, I wonder if it'll be today. And then that faded, you know, that faded away. And I got wrapped up in all kinds of uh, theological questions about the end times. And with all due respect to those issues, which I still engage in, when the Bible talks about those who long for his appearing, I don't think it's talking about people who are really, really charting the progression of the ten toes and what's happening in Europe and whether Russia's getting ready to attack Israel or not and who the Antichrist is going to be and you know how many people's names add up to 666. Now, it's got nothing to do with that. It has a lot more to do with standing and looking out the window the way you would looking for your your dad to come home from some long separation and you're longing, longing, longing for him to come. Paul goes on to say here in Philippians 3, he says, I don't claim that I've already attained this resurrection while still in my mortal body or that I have already reached perfection. I press on to try to grasp that for which Jesus has grasped hold of me. Brothers, I do not regard myself to have grasped the prize, but I have one aim in life, to forget what lies behind and to strain every nerve to reach what lies ahead. And so I press on to the goal to win the prize to which Jesus calls me upward and onward. Now, you might be thinking, well, you know, David Brainerd, you know, he was special and Paul is Paul. So what do you expect? But look what Paul says here. This must be how all of us who are mature Christians feel about life. If there's any point on which you feel differently, God will make it clear to you in time. Did you get that? Paul's saying, that, look, I'm not some super apostle. I'm, I mean, Paul is obviously beyond any other example we can think of in history, but that's because we don't know much about history. I mean, God's got people down through the ages who have walked in a level of union with him that has transformed their particular culture. I'm not saying they're, quote, greater than Paul or less than Paul. Paul would not, Paul would be the first one to say, I'm not the measuring stick anyway, for heaven's sakes. He got pretty aggravated with those who wanted to be of Paul versus those who wanted to be of Peter and those who wanted to be of Apollos. He said, forget all that. 
the standard is Jesus. And th- but then he goes on to say here, if you want to read on in, in the rest of Philippians 3, he goes on to say, uh, I want to be your example in this. Uh, I, I'm not trying to be super saint. I, I'm, I'm your example. Uh, the J.B. Phillips translates this this way. He says, all of us who are spiritually adult should set ourselves this sort of ambition. And if at present you cannot see this, yet you will find that this is the attitude which God is leading you towards. It is so important that we go forward in the light of such truth and not shrink away from it or not back away from it. That's the way J.B. Phillips translates that. Then, then Paul goes on to say here, let me be your example. Let my example be the standard by which you can tell who are the genuine Christians among you and who are not. For there are many of whom I have told you before and tell you again now even with tears that are enemies of the cross of Christ. They love this present world. They're 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 headed for destruction. Their God is their own appetites. And the implication there, the use of the word belly in the King James Version, is talking about the sexual, uh, the, 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 that, whole, that whole part of the physical being that gives itself over to partying, drunkenness, uh, revelry, immorality, sexual sin of various types. Uh, he says, you know, they love... Their pride is in what they should be ashamed of. He said they they revel in things that they ought to be ashamed of. And this world is the limit of their horizon. Again, this is Barclay's translation. This present world is the limit of their horizon. But our citizenship is in heaven. Now, see, I mentioned this a while ago. You understand what Paul's saying to them is our citizenship is in heaven. He's not saying they love the present world, but we're going to float off into the sky and live in heaven where we don't do those nasty, dirty things that take a physical body. That's not what he's saying. But that's what 90%, I don't know how many percent, too many Christians think when they read this. He's saying our citizenship is in heaven. We are here on the earth, but we are citizens of heaven and we are bringing heaven to the earth. Our vision goes beyond this present world to the hopeful expectation of the Savior who will come from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform these wretched bodies of ours so that they become like his glorious body by the power that he has that makes him master over everything. Praise be to God. Now, the third aspect of the way the early church thought that we have to have restored is that they were totally convinced that death was destroyed. They did not have a false dichotomy between the physical and the spiritual. They did not have a compromising love for the world system, but were against the world system for the sake of saving the world. 
And then finally, they were totally convinced that death was dead. I think you need to understand that they did not look forward to the day of the resurrection as an event that would finally happen at the end of the age and that somehow in the process they did the best they could. That's not the way they thought. The early church did not view the resurrection of Jesus as a strange event that happened inside the flow of the old world. They saw it as the end of the old world and the birth of the new. This is why in New Testament writers often speak of uh, as if they were living in the, quote, end of the age. Because they were. The old world ended at the resurrection of Jesus. The new world was born at the resurrection of Jesus. Because they understood that, they were able to face the horror and the cruelty of the dying empires of men that turned all their rage against the church. As N.T. Wright says, quote, death is the last weapon of the tyrant. And the point of the resurrection is the overthrow of those whose power is dependent upon death as a weapon. In other words, if the tyrant's greatest weapon is fear of death, and you have no fear of death because you are free from an overattachment to the world and are therefore able to minister to the world without compromise, and death holds no terror for you because of Jesus and the resurrection from the dead and the, the, the mercy of God in the cross, then your existence inside the structure of the kingdoms of men is its guaranteed downfall. Because if if you remove from the tyrant his power of death, then he's dependent on that power to wield control. And you're the one element in in the situation that he can't control. Now, This is why the early church understood baptism in a way that we sadly do not. Buried with him in baptism for them almost certainly meant literal death because a new king ruling a new kingdom which cannot be intimidated by threats of death is unstoppable and invulnerable and therefore must be crushed. But they embraced the call and faced the danger and endured to the end because there was not a cultural preference in them that they were raised in but a supernatural revelation that had already shown them they they had already been translated out of the old world and into the new. If all that stood between them and home was the door of death, they confronted the tyrants and stepped through the door, knowing that just as they had been buried with him in baptism, so they would also be raised to newness of life. It was not just a formula spoken over the ritual. It was their destiny. I don't know what we're going to face, folks. It doesn't take a prophet to see the potentials all around us for the total shaking of everything. Many things we've grown up with and thought were unmovable are disintegrating right before our eyes. And it's my earnest desire that before such shaking comes that all those I love and all those that I have any influence with 
might be awakened to the great difference there is between the view of the first church that we've been examining and the weak caricature of Christianity that we have culturally become. It is within our grasp, each one of us individually, if we want to, to follow the lead of Paul and of David Brainerd and to press in to know the Lord and to draw near to him and to become so united with him that he transforms us in ways that preview your resurrection body while still in your physical earthly body. And remember, Paul said that what part of that concept you can't grasp or what part of it you think is just not a possibility for you, God will lead you to it if you ask him to. So maybe right now you you should ask him to. It's not a prayer that I can pray for you. I mean, I could do a nice little closing prayer. But the bottom line is, this is something you've got to pursue. You know, get get various translations of Philippians 3 and, and read them. Soak yourself in them. One of the difficulties of reading Scripture is we get so familiar with it, it loses its power. That's why I tell people to get various translations so different words hit you different ways. It's kind of like, you know, when you work out, if you do the same exercise over and over, your body gets so accustomed to it, it doesn't change anymore. So you have to change your routine if you're going to really make a change. Sometimes you need to read things from a different angle that, that will penetrate and get through to you. But it is, it is within our reach, folks. This is why I'm, I'm not frightened by where we are. I'm grateful, not for the trouble, not for the danger. I'd, I'd be a weirdo and a fool to be happy about that. But I'm, I'm happy that we are being shaken free from a, a mindset of worldly, satisfied Christian whoredom that is more in love with the old Babylon than the new Jerusalem. 